talking about atonement. And the English word atonement is a confusing one, I think, for a lot of Christians, because when we hear that word, it conjures up a lot of related terms. Justification, propitiation, expiation, redemption. Terms that we probably aren't very certain how to define to begin with. Of course, if any of those terms sound familiar, just here we might realize that for the last three weeks we've been talking about the atonement without actually talking about it. Because those three words over the last three weeks, justification, propitiation, redemption, are all intimately related to the concept of atonement. Now part of our confusion is because we don't really have a good English word to fully convey the concept of atonement. The English word atonement, in fact, had to be invented to try to do just that. It's not a word that existed before it was coined to try to explain this concept in Scripture. It's a lot like another word I've mentioned in the Old Testament before, uh, loving kindness, that word that was invented for the King James Version to translate that Hebrew word, Hesed, which is God's steadfast love, God's uh, mercy, his love that just keeps on loving us and will not let us go. Well, the same thing is true of atonement. It had to be invented for Scripture. But it's one of those words that we seldom use outside of a church setting, so we still may not be entirely sure what it means. Essentially, Atonement refers to the process by which sinners are brought back into a right relationship with God. And as crazy as it probably seems to us, if you just break down that word into all of its constituent parts at one mint, its etymology is almost exactly what it appears to be. At one meant, the state of being at one. Now, that won't work for all words. I know it sounds nuts, but, you know, uh, I'm speaking to a microphone, for instance. If you break that down, that would be a, a tiny little phone. Well, that's not what a microphone is. But when it comes to atonement, uh, William Tyndall, the father of the English Bible, is often attributed with coining this word, and he combined an earlier archaic noun, Onement, which believe it or not was a word in English, but onement, the state of, of being at one, with the word at, which means exactly what we think it means. And so putting those two together, at onement, setting two parties here in this state of being one. So atonement is this condition of being one again with God. Now, the real question is, how does that work? Scripture is pretty clear that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was God's plan to make us one with him. This long story that everything is pointing to from the beginning of Scripture. All of it reaches its climax in Jesus. This is God's plan for setting things right. 
The New Testament's clear on that. But the New Testament writers are less clear on exactly how that works. They just take it as a given. Much like in the passage that Tristan read a a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 53. We all know uh, verse number 5 there in particular. Uh, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. Well, that's taken for granted But how exactly does that happen? Throughout Christian history, theologians have struggled with theories then of the atonement, trying to explain just exactly how this works. And there are more than these, and there are even subtle variations within these, but generally speaking, big picture, there are are three main theories of the atonement that have been put forward. The satisfaction theory, the ransom theory, and the moral example theory. So the satisfaction theory was first advanced by a fellow named Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And his idea was that sin has impugned God's honor. And God's honor needs to be satisfied. And so the atonement was about the satisfaction of God's honor. Now, Martin Luther and John Calvin also talked about the death of Jesus in some ways that were related to this, but but Calvin in particular uh, tried to distinguish his view from that of Anselm, and he talked about satisfaction not in terms of God's honor. It wasn't about God's honor being impugned, but uh, God's justice and God's holiness. Because God is perfectly righteous and holy and God is perfectly just, sin needs to be punished. But because God is also merciful and loving, he doesn't want to punish us. And so his justice and his holiness demanded that there be some satisfaction, some uh, penalty that's paid for sin. In either case, the point of this satisfaction theory is that some punishment is meted out for sin. Jesus takes that on himself. He pays that penalty so that we don't have to. The alternative to Anselm's theory, was pioneered by a fellow named Peter Abelard, who was a near contemporary of his. He lived just a little bit after him in the 12th century. And this is the moral example theory. And the idea is that the cross shows just how much God loves us because look at what a terrible price he was willing to pay for our sins. And so when we see that, it gives us a reason to love God it gives us a reason to love others in return. So the focus here in the moral example theory is on God's selfless, in fact, self-giving, self-emptying love for us. And then there's the ransom theory. Now that focuses on Jesus' death as overcoming the power of sin, overcoming the power of Satan that's enslaving humanity. We talked about this somewhat uh, last week when we talked about redemption and in its you know most speculative crudest form we talk about the ransom theory human beings are in bondage God paid a price to ransom them he must be paying it to the devil and that's a a really crazy way to formulate this but in its a more developed form sometimes this is referred to as Christus Victor and that is the idea that Jesus has triumphed over the power of evil of sin and death so the focus here is on God's work in triumphing over all of that evil. 
Now, hopefully when we lay out those three, it's not important that you necessarily remember all these or be able to explain them or anything like that. But, but I hope when we lay out those three main theories, you can see how they all have roots in some of the terms that we've explored so far in the last few weeks. The satisfaction theory has its roots in that idea of propitiation, doesn't it? The idea that there must be some penalty that's paid for sin, that some sacrifice is necessary in order to appease, to propitiate the deity. The ransom theory has its roots in that concept of redemption that we explored last week, that a price must be paid to rescue, to deliver humanity from sin and from death. The moral example theory, even if it's not rooted in one of these words in particular that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, uh, certainly that echoes the love that God has for us, and we're all familiar with that. I mean, we think about the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the moral example theory is, is rooted in passages just like that. But my whole point in mentioning all these is that that sort of systematic thinking about the atonement and how we break it all down uh, philosophically, theologically, that's foreign to the New Testament. We don't read anything like that in scripture. And the fact that we don't start seeing some of these theories really begin to be fully formulated for a millennium should give us some pause that maybe this is not the right way to think about this in these organized terms. Scripture tells us repeatedly that Jesus died for our sins, that that somehow reconciles us to God. But it doesn't really offer us an explanation of how that works. It just says that it works. It doesn't really tell us why Jesus' death is something that God's willing to accept as payment for our sins. Instead, what it does is it gives us images to try to convey this truth to us. They describe the reality without really explaining it to us because it's something that in some sense is beyond our comprehension. So it's just giving us these glimpses of what Jesus' death does. And we've seen three of those images so far, these common everyday images that help us to get a, a grasp on what Jesus' death did. There's that word justification. That's the language that comes right out of the law court of someone being declared not guilty or maybe better guilty but pardoned. There is propitiation. That's foreign to us, but it's the language of sacrifice common to both Jews and to pagans, the idea that a sacrifice is needed in order to appease the deity. And then there's redemption. That's the language of the marketplace, in particular uh, the slave market, the idea of buying someone, redeeming them, ransoming them from their captivity. As we wrap up tonight, I want us to note two more images that are used in Scripture that help to fill out this picture of the atonement. Uh, one is reconciliation. That comes to us from uh, the realm of personal relationships. And then there's victory. That's the language of warfare. And what I want us to see, I don't want us to come up with our own theory of exactly how the atonement works, but the idea is all of these are different threads that are woven together to make up this tapestry. And when we think of it that way, we recognize, like you would a beautiful work of art, it's not something that we can really understand. 
but we can take a step back and we can appreciate the beauty of what God's done for us. So first of all, reconciliation. Uh, To reconcile is to change from enmity to friendship. It's to make friends again, to bring you back into a state of friendship. Now, that's not a religious term, strictly speaking. That's unlike some of these others. That's not something that was common in the religious world of either Judaism or paganism in the first century. Instead, this is a term that comes to us from personal relationships, from diplomatic relationships even. And in the New Testament, this concept comes to us uh, exclusively from Paul. Paul's the only one who uses this sort of language, but he uses it extensively. Paul frequently describes salvation in terms of being brought into friendship with God, that once we were God's enemies, and now in Christ, we've been made into God's friends, where before there was enmity, now there's peace. He sums it up really well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. He says, all this is from God, and that this there is the new creation. You know, in the previous verses, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul talks about his whole message and his whole ministry in terms of trying to reconcile people bringing them back into this right relationship with God. But I I want you to notice here, first of all, the subject of the action. Who's the one doing the reconciling? It's God. God's the one who takes the initiative here. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to him. We're the ones who violated the terms of our relationship. We're the terms, ones that created the the obstacle, the barrier here to our friendship with God. So we need to be reconciled to him. Our sins have separated us from him. They've estranged us from him. And so God takes the initiative to remove that barrier, that obstacle, and restore the relationship. All this is from God, Paul says there in verse number 18. So God is the subject of reconciliation. He does the reconcile. The object of reconciliation is us. We human beings who need to be put back into that right state with God. Uh, Paul talks about this uh, in another place in Romans chapter 5, a great chapter for understanding this also. But he says there in verse number 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, oftentimes in human relationships, if there's some sort of problem in a relationship, a mediator is needed in order to, to set things right again. I think you've done some of that uh, type of work. It may be needed in legal disputes like that. It may be needed in uh, labor disagreements. We often refer to it as arbitration then. Uh, It might be 
needed in, in personal relationships. Well, in the same way, we have a mediator with God. And the mediator between human beings and God is Jesus Christ. Paul talks about him that way more than once. You can think of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, most famously probably, where there is one mediator between God and man, himself the man, Christ Jesus. Paul says back in Romans 5, we read it a moment ago, that we've received reconciliation through him there in verse number 10. He repeats it in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In particular, the point he makes is that the way we receive that reconciliation is through his death. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So this is the language of personal relationships, one way that the atonement is imaged in scripture. We're brought back into a right relationship with God. That's achieved through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And in particular, that mediating circumstance is his death. That's what brings us back into friendship with God. The other image that we want to talk about is victory. Because God's action in Christ is frequently pictured in this martial image of military victory. And this is over the forces of evil that have held human beings in their power. Uh, Paul uses this also a few places, but in particular in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse number 15, Paul writes that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him triumphing over. That's a verb that literally means to lead in a triumphal procession. And when you think of the the triumphal procession, uh, hopefully some of us uh, remember from our studies of ancient Rome, we're talking here about the big victory parade that they would lead there in the city of Rome. When they would win a great victory, uh, it, it was an honor that was given to a commander to in some cases, when it was a great victory, to be able to lead this triumphal procession with all the spoils and your captives and everything through the city. That's the verb that's mentioned here. The Roman practice to celebrate the triumph, that's what Paul has in mind, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he put them to open shame, and he led this triumphal procession that demonstrated that. Uh, The language of rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, that's sometimes used. We're talking here about spiritual beings, these forces who were opposed to God's purposes. Now, we don't think about this too much in our own world, but the New Testament world is keenly aware of the fact that there are forces out there, dark cosmic forces, Paul talks about them in Ephesians also, demonic forces, there's no better way to put it, that are out there active, at work in the world that are opposed to God and to his will. Scripture's conscious of that. And it promises that we have deliverance from them, from all these enemies, both diabolical and human, those demonic ones standing behind the human ones. It promises deliverance from them and the fact that we'll be ushered instead into the kingdom of God. That's the way Paul talks about it in Colossians 1, verse 13. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You'll note that connection again to the work of Jesus, in particular the death of Jesus, this idea of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. Paradoxically, that's how this victory is won, through Jesus' death and resurrection. So, putting all this together and drawing together not only what we've talked about tonight, but the threads from the previous few weeks, what is this tapestry, that's the metaphor we used, what does this tapestry of the atonement look like? Well, one thing I want us to note is the importance of the blood of Christ. All of these New Testament images of the atonement center in Jesus. They center in his work. In particular, they center in the cross and in his resurrection. Now, we've seen both of these. We've seen that in both of these tonight, in both victory and in reconciliation. But you think back to these previous words, sacrifice, that's obviously associated with the shedding of blood. We have blood mentioned with redemption or ransom. We saw that last week as the price that's paid. And it's also associated with justification. For instance, Romans 5 verse 9. Paul says, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the point here is that the New Testament teaching of salvation is all tied up in this idea of blood atonement. Now, that's something that's offensive to some modern sensibilities. Some commentators, some theologians, we don't like to talk about this, but because it seems barbaric. But that's precisely what the New Testament teaches. We sing it sometimes, songs like, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, that's the teaching of Scripture. And it's fitting that next week we're going to talk about the crucifixion. So we're going to come back to this idea. But, but keep that in mind. But secondly, I want you to notice in each and every one of these images, God is the one who's doing the work. Justification overcomes law and guilt. Sacrifice overcomes the need for propitiation. Redemption overcomes slavery to sin. Reconciliation that we talked about tonight, that overcomes hostility and chaos. Victory, that overcomes the evil powers. But whether we're thinking of these, these metaphors, these images, in terms of the law court or the temple or the marketplace or personal relationships or the battlefield, each one of these images emphasizes God's action. He justified. He makes sacrifice. He propitiated himself. He redeems. He reconciles. He wins the victory. In every one of these aspects, God is triumphant. Finally, the last thing we want to note, wrapping this idea of atonement up, is that we need to avoid a couple of opposite tendencies in the way people sometimes think of and talk about the atonement. One is in viewing the atonement as limited, that Christ's death was only for the elect, only for those who were already predestined to be saved. That's one of the uh, classic five points of, of Calvinism, the limited atonement. Christ died only to save those who were predestined to be saved. Not He didn't die for everyone. Well, it's true that the benefits of Christ's death 
only apply to the elect. We're not talking about a universal salvation here. What Christ did for us in his death and in his resurrection, that's no good if we don't make the response Scripture calls for, if we don't appropriate those benefits. But to say that he died only for the elect, well, that's to say too much. That goes against so much of what we've seen in Scripture tonight over the past several weeks. The Lord desires everyone to be saved, we're told. In fact, that's the reason that he delays his return, because he desires all to come to repentance. That's what Peter writes. Or we could think back to that most famous verse in the Bible again. God so loved the world. The death and the resurrection of Jesus made salvation available to everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone takes advantage of it. And that brings us back to lessons we had a few months ago where we talked about the response that we need to make. We have to appropriate it for ourselves, yes, but it's open to all, and God's desire is that everyone would respond and be saved. But the other extreme is to make salvation, even for the elect, uncertain. Sometimes I hear it talked about this way. We'll have uh, prayers, hear it at the Lord's table frequently we'll talk about uh, the thanks that we have for Jesus' blood that was shed and the chance it gives us at eternal life. Now, I know what people mean when they say that. They're talking about an, an opportunity that we have, but that terminology really is poorly chosen because a chance implies that there's something risky here, that it's a gamble. You know, you take a chance if you go buy a lottery ticket. It's not a good chance. Uh, you're probably not going to win. But there's nothing chancy in the atonement. This is sure. This is certain. God says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ didn't die to give us a chance. He died to give us a certainty. Now again, that requires that we make that proper response, and that requires that we walk in the light. We're getting in some other fields here. But we shouldn't think of this as something that's risky, something that's uncertain, something that causes us to lie awake at night with doubts, wondering if we're in that elect or not. No, we have that promise. Christ died for us. And so because of that, however exactly that works, we have been reconciled to God. We're his friends. We're in that right relationship with him. And we have that promise of an eternity with him. That's a great truth. But if you're here this evening and there is some sin in your life that you need to repent of, then you're not in that state of friendship with God. You need to make changes tonight. And if that applies to you, if you need to make some of those changes, if you need to repent in a public way in order to be back in that reconciled state with God, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing.